previously on Dead and Gone. There were five days of Grateful Dead concerts here at Brendan Byrne Arena last week. Police report several arrests, among them 15 for drug violations and the murder of a lifetime Grateful Dead admirer, Adam Katz. Mr. Katz was discovered unconscious by a passerby at approximately 9.30 p.m. One single blow, the medical examiner says, was the cause of death. He was definitely hit over the top of the head with something. Police say Adam checks out as a good boy, a popular young man, no prior arrests, and from a fine family, grieving today over their loss. When we got to the hospital, it was hard to recognize him. The first thing I did was I took his hand and I said, Adam, Mommy and Daddy are here, it's gonna be okay. And he squeezed my hand very hard. That was the last reaction he had. They told me it was a reflex, but I guess I would kind of like to believe that he waited for us. There is a Facebook group that was established at one point. There is somebody on there in one of the comments who says that he saw something that night. Whether or not it was Adam Katz, I think is unclear. I thought the guards got too, too violent with somebody, went overboard, and the kid died. My producer Mike Rooney and I checked out the Facebook group Dean told us about a page dedicated to finding who murdered Adam Katz. We combed through a bunch of the comments, and here's a few that stood out. Mark said, I was there that night. Those yellow-jacketed motherfuckers were wound up. Tara said that she was there too, and the security was intensely aggressive, scary, and looking to beat up a bunch of peaceful, nonviolent kids. That's the truth. They hated us, belittling us, tried to instigate us, we had to ignore them because they were just looking for a reason to get physically aggressive. Catherine says, I was at that show. The guards wore yellow jackets, so that's what we called them. They were violent. Charles also commented, I was at that show. I saw the yellow jackets beat the shit out of a kid who was 16 years old. There are about 800 other people that saw it too. I hope they find the guards that did this. Dion said, I was at the show. The security guards were horrid. Barbie commented, a cover-up for sure. It makes me hurt inside that no one ever confessed or ratted out their assailants. Scum of the earth. Jason said, I remember Adam. I saw him kicked out that night, right in front of me. I remember a big guard in a yellow jacket with a flat top grabbing him. And I stayed inside, but I wish I would have followed them out. That's a lot of eyewitnesses coming forward, most of them pointing their fingers at security personnel. Mike called one of the guys that responded from the Adam Katz Facebook group. He always excited to go to Grateful Dead show, and that night settled up pretty well. They got off to a very good start. This is Robert Hamilton. In 1989, he attended a concert where the Grateful Dead performed and Adam Katz was murdered. A lot of people are having a good time listening to the music. They're still what they usually do. It's usually a very mellow atmosphere. People are in good mood. People smiling and laughing, dancing. And it was a community. It was just a community. It was a lot of fun. It was like part 
concert in part like open air festival, you know? I hate to sound like Woodstock, but it's just, it really was like an open air love festival. People were just happy, happy to be alive. And you know, you'd be at work all day, you're dealing with assholes, and then you're like, I'm gonna go to this concert tonight. It would be completely, it would be a completely different atmosphere and lifestyle than something you just left, you know, from corporate America. And just go there, and these people would actually hug you. You don't even know these people. For some reason, there was something in the air that night. And you started to feel it after a while. It started to feel just a different atmosphere. There wasn't as much easygoingness. There was more like tension and pensive and stress. Just like Dean, Robert had a gut feeling that something felt off that night. Before I got into the actual parking lot where everybody was, was, you know, partying, they got worse and worse. You saw large groups of those guys in yellow jackets in every spot, in every parking lot. These large groups of yellow jacketed security people. I asked Dean about the security guards at this show. The security, they always wore these yellow jackets. Thus, people called them the yellow jackets, which seemed to be fitting because that's the way they tended to behave. They'd swarm in, they'd sting. I I think that that term was embraced by both sides. And it, it did sort of feel like there was that sort of dichotomy. There were deadheads and there were yellow jackets. In terms of physical violence, I never saw physical violence. I want to be very clear about that. Did I see intense yelling, toe-to-toe, extending their chests and, and strutting their stuff? Absolutely. The guys in the yellow jacket showed up and fucked it all up. Asserting their authority quite heavily. It was never like that before. Because I did travel to the people that I saw in Maryland, I saw in Massachusetts. This thing was overly aggressive, and nobody could really figure out why. We're going through there, and the steel-toed boots and their flashlights and just bashing people. I mean, hitting people for no reason. Their mindset, it seemed to be, to create the danger and the mayhem, and they did a pretty good job of that. We understand that the open container law in New Jersey can't have open beer, you gotta have it in a, in a cup. People didn't really do that because nobody ever really did. You went to a Giants football game, nobody ever did that. They just drank it out of the bottle of a can. But this night, that seemed to be a, a, a problem. They were hitting people in the arms, they had huge black flashlights and bashing people with those things in, the, in their back and on our arms to drop the alcohol. It turned pretty aggressive pretty quickly. And they were in every quadrant of parking just abusing people and yelling at people. And they were coming to a new area where people were parking. They were yelling and screaming like, here we come, we're coming by, you better put that stuff away, blah, blah, blah. Now get rid of the pot, get rid of the beer. You know, and people, you know, weren't really understanding what they were doing. Like, are these guys serious? Because we've been here before, we've done this before, what's the big deal? Never saw that attitude in any of those parking lot scenes ever. But people were doing the same thing. Smoking pot, drinking beers doing shots of booze. Never happened. Only that night. And that's when they started with the physicalness and pushing people, knocking people up against guards, people with flashlights. And, you know, two or three guys on one guy at a time. I was shocked at some of the scenes he was describing. I thought we were talking about a Grateful Dead concert, not a riot. Trying to research violence at dead shows, I was going through their archives and found a strange interaction at a show in 1973. 
a fan got past the barrier that separates the stage from the audience. Okay, 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 asshole. Okay, asshole. Okay, asshole. That's it for you. You're through. At first, it seemed like the Grateful Dead were fine with them stopping the fan. But then, the security guard started punching him. Hey, uh, don't beat on our audience, guys. Hey, hey, quit throwing punches. Okay, hold it. Everybody quit throwing punches and we'll start playing again. Listen, would you rather hear music or would you rather get punched? It's real simple that don't cross the barrier and you won't get punched. Another six feet won't make that much difference anyhow. I thought the guards got too, too violent with somebody, went overboard, and the kid died. And they just dumped the body to cover their ass. Typical New Jersey way to do, to do things, you know, just dump the body in the road and take off. I saw them hitting people with those flashlights. So would it surprise me if they cracked this guy over the head a few times with the flashlights? Wouldn't surprise me at all. It's been kind of a tense scene. It's been dangerous and it's been rough. We've come through it, hanging out and having an okay time, watching for helicopters, the yellow uniformed police security officers. In our uh, background, you'll see the first aid station. They've gone to administer first aid probably out uh, the front of the parking lot. We sat down again with Todd Matthews, and I asked him, in his opinion, what would it take to solve a case like Adam Katz? I think, it, like you said, it's, it's going to take a witness that might have saw the event that happened. Maybe somebody did see something that had not linked it back. Did somebody see somebody having a conflict with security guards? Did they see that and maybe have not really connected with this case? Did they know that person died? There could be some small detail that one of your listeners, one of the fans, has that they might not think is relevant, but it could be a starting point. I think it's really important that you keep putting that story out there to see if anybody can come forward. Sometimes it takes a long time for people to come forward to get the nerve. I've had tips on cases after putting the story out several times and finally somebody says, hey, I might have some information. Giving them the opportunity, the invitation to reach out to you, they might be a little leery about going to law enforcement. They might be afraid that they're not gonna be believed but I think if you guys keep an open mind, which is what I have, and is willing to listen to somebody to see if their tip is relevant, I think that's really important. You're bringing that into this. You want to hear everything. They're not just knocking on a door hoping that somebody's interested. You're inviting people, and I think that's, that's really important if you're trying to dig for this piece of information. Can you talk for a minute just about the power of having an eyewitness? That changes everything. It's just like a body cam. The power of somebody actually witnessing it can change a lot about how things transpired. And we're hoping that people will see something in these stories. That little piece of information you have might change the circumstances enough that we can open this up again, take a deeper look at it. You need a good eyewitness, not somebody says, I heard, somebody says, I saw. 
you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's Journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Okay. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Jerry Garcia didn't see it happen with his own two eyes, but he didn't have to. He knew something was wrong as soon as he stepped out of the helicopter and onto the tarmac of the Altamont Speedway. He knew bad scenes, how they smelled, how the air felt heavy. The sun was setting just beyond the hills. Soon there would be no escaping the darkness. One way or another, something had to give. Phil Lesh, on the other hand, didn't want to believe it was true. Hell's angels beating on musicians just didn't make sense. But it was true. Even if the Grateful Dead and the Notorious Motorcycle Club had been strange but amicable bedfellows in the past, not all Hell's Angels were as good-natured as Bay Area guys like Sweet William and Frisco Pete. There were others, angels with dirty faces. Jerry stood on the asphalt outside the helicopter, his black bushy beard and purple poncho harbingers of an inevitable winter, and listened to a story about how Marty Ballin of the Jefferson Airplane had just jumped from the stage into the crowd after he witnessed an angel beating on a fan. And how that angel, a guy named Animal, if you can believe it, had then turned his attention from that poor stoned kid in the crowd, disoriented and bleeding from the head, to Marty Ballon himself, who Animal then proceeded to beat unconscious with a pool cue. So much for the whole friend of the devil is a friend of mine thing. The day wasn't even half over and the scene was already a bummer. But it was about to get even worse. It was supposed to be peaceful, 
a free show powered by free love. The Rolling Stones planned the all-day show at Altamont Speedway, 50 miles east of San Francisco, as the last stop on their American tour, gratis. A gesture of gratitude to their fans. And that gesture borrowed heavily from the ethos of Bay Area bands like the Grateful Dead, who played more free shows in the 1960s than most bands would play over their entire careers. Jerry and the boys were thus an obvious choice to share the stage with the Stones, along with the Airplane, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, Santana and the Flying Burrito Brothers. The Stones' entire 1969 tour was being filmed by a documentary crew, and the free show would serve as the climactic final act of the narrative. The hope was that Altamont would be the West Coast Woodstock. But from the moment the sun rose on the morning of December 6, 1969, the omens weren't so hopeful. A Buddhist monk and a pacifist sat on the low-rise stage, planning to greet the morning sun with a mantra of positivity. Their moment of zen was disrupted by the sound of throngs storming the speedway and bounding down the hill. The masses trampled the perimeter fence in the dirt. 20,000 people, then 50,000, 100,000. And by the afternoon, there were close to 300,000 on site. Though darkness loomed and the off-season breeze blew in a chill, it still felt like there could be potential here. Kids were pawning hashish, LSD, grass, mushrooms, stripping naked, bawling, soliciting contributions for the Black Panther's defense fund. Two babies were born, and then the angels came. The engine of a Harley-Davidson motorcycle will vibrate inside the chest of anybody in its vicinity. When a whole army of them make the scene, that's another thing entirely. Mufflers yapping, throttles squawking, peace and love interrupted. For $500 worth of beer, the angels had been hired to provide security for the festival. Or had they? The extent of the angels' role as security has since been highly debated. It was something the motorcycle club had done many times before in the Bay Area. But Sam Cutler, the Rolling Stones tour manager, and later the Grateful Dead's tour manager, later said that the only directive given to the Angels was to protect the generators. They weren't hired to police anything. Cutler said that the claim that the Rolling Stones hired the Hells Angels was, quote, one of the great rock and roll canards. Sonny Barger, president of the Angels' Oakland chapter, backed up Cutler's statement. I didn't go there to police nothing, man. Barger said during an interview on a local radio station two days after the show. I ain't no cop. I ain't never gonna pretend to be no cop. I ain't no peace creep by any sense of the word. Other conflicting accounts verified that the Hells Angels most certainly were hired as security guards, perhaps by Rock Scully, not only the dead's former manager, but also a former biker, or maybe by Emmett Grogan, founder of the Diggers, a radical group of community anarchists in the hate who helped get the doomed concert off the ground. In his book, A Long Strange Trip, The Inside History of the Grateful Dead, Dennis McNally, the Grateful Dead's longtime publicist, wrote, the ultimate job requirement for a good security person is a detached, intelligent sense of humor. The angels did not qualify. There was no sense of humor in the angels standing outside the truck, stage left, that housed the Grateful Dead at Altamont. Hired security or not, the angel took his role seriously. No one went inside the truck and no one came out. The dead weren't leaving that vehicle until it was their time to go on stage. If anyone had a problem with that, they could talk to the sharp end of the long stick the angel was holding in his hand. Phil Lesh called bullshit 
He wanted out. The angel warned him. The angel had the power. Phil didn't have shit. Just some hippy-dippy notion of how things should be. If Phil wanted a scene, he'd get a scene. Phil would get his face smashed in just like Marty Ballin. Before the angel got to make good on his promise, Terry the Tramp, a member of the San Francisco chapter, diffused the argument. But the damage was done. The vibe wasn't just bad, it had curdled. This was one strange trip the dead wouldn't take. Jerry led the band on a short walk back to where their helicopter sat waiting. The chopper started its engine, and the dead piled inside. The helicopter rose into the air as Jerry and his bandmates huddled together. They didn't look down, didn't look back. The real world was down there, teeming with more than a quarter million people, most of them having a good time, and a few of them ensuring that very few had a good time. The Grateful Dead never played their set at Altima. They weren't there to witness a naked hippie high on LSD declare that he was pregnant and jump from a nearby freeway overpass 40 feet straight down. And they weren't there to watch as another hippie drowned in an irrigation ditch. And they did not watch as two more were killed when a car ran over them sitting on their blankets next to a campfire. Nor did they watch the angels continue to pommel kids with pool cues and bicycle spokes. The angels beat Stephen Stills till he bled. Keith Richards felt the barrel of Sonny Barger's revolver in his side when he complained about the gathering chaos. By that point, the Stones were performing their headlining set. And there were just as many angels as musicians on the stage. The motorcycle club was looking for a reason to go on the offensive. Any reason. Someone knocking over their bikes, Keith Richards mouthing off into the microphone. The tension was so fraught and the scene so lawless that the Rolling Stones didn't even notice when a kid in a lime green suit near the front of the stage waved around a Smith & Wesson and was subdued by a Hell's Angel with a knife. Carlos Santana had seen those knives flashed earlier in the day. He knew they'd come out eventually. The knives always came out. The kid in the lime green suit was Meredith Hunter, just 18 years old. The wounds he sustained from Angel Alan Passaro's knife were fatal. Hunter had been beaten and chased away from the stage by the Angels earlier that night. When he returned, he was ready to fight fire with fire. And the Grateful Dead weren't there to see Meredith Hunter die. The Rolling Stones were there. And they didn't even notice what had happened until they watched the documentary crew's footage later on. Ironically, the song they were playing when it all went down was Sympathy for the Devil. 20 years later, in 1989, at Meadowlands in New Jersey, security guards weren't riding Harleys. They weren't working for $500 in beer, but they posed an equal threat to peace and love. The Yellow Jackets were on a tear that night. Empowered by the word security written in large black letters on their backs, just like the MC patches Hell's Angels proudly displayed on their standard issue vests. The Yellow Jackets harassed the hippies, the fans, the ones drinking beers and smoking bowls. They knew the fans weren't the type to fight back. And if they did, like Meredith Hunter did back in 1969, well, they'd be ready for that. No one would escape the darkness. We like to think that we've come so far, that we've learned some valuable lessons from tragedy that history isn't meant to be repeated. Point is, it doesn't matter if it's a Hell's Angel in MC leather or a venue security guard in a yellow windbreaker. A thug's a thug's a thug. And it also doesn't matter if it's 1969 at the Altamont Speedway in California or 1989 at Meadowlands in New Jersey. One generation's Meredith Hunter 
is the next generation's Adam Katz. You don't even have to see it with your own eyes. The bad scene is bound to happen, one way or another. Right. And if you want to know about all the cool stuff that we've been up to, all the projects and products that you might be interested in knowing about and maybe buying, you'll probably be interested in this toll-free number. And if you call it right now, we will get back to you as soon as possible. As we mentioned in the last episode, the Grateful Dead did try to help the Katz family in any way they could. They used their large outreach to raise awareness by circulating Adam's picture in newsletters sent out to the fans. It started to become a subject that deadheads would talk about before and after shows. Relics Magazine, which covers live and improvisational music, would often feature articles going over Adam's death and asking for help with any information relating to what happened that day. When we sat down with Dean, he mentioned that he'd received some tips years ago and that he'd be willing to reach out to them and see if they'd talk with us. I received a few emails from people suggesting that they were there, they had seen something, they had heard something. And eventually, Payne and I got in contact with one of them. It wasn't until a live CD, Night Full of Diamonds, came out, no one, that I'm reading the back of this, and they mention Adam Katz and the death at the Brendan Burn, and I'm like, wow, 89, that's right in my wheelhouse. I was probably at the show. I did reach out to Relics Magazine many years ago when I first when I first realized that. I said, hey, that could have been the kid I saw in the parking lot. And I never thought a kid died until that CD came out. And then it took a long time for me to even just, you know, put two and two together. Like, holy shit. I think I saw this thing. This is Antonio. He was at the Grateful Dead concert in 1989 and witnessed an event in the parking lot before the show. I am an ex-New Yorker, and my family had giant season tickets. So I had been in the Meadowlands since 1976. So I know every inch of that complex, because there was a racetrack, a basketball, hockey arena, and then they had the football stadium. I will also tell you, for my age of 58, I have an incredible memory when it comes to certain things. I could tell you who I was with at this show. I could tell you where my car was parked, the guys I was with, what happened. But the kid I witnessed died, for sure. He was outside in the parking lot before the show. What I saw was it was a Saturday. We had gotten to the uh, Brendan Byrne Arena like 2, 3 in the afternoon. I was 27 years old, so my partying days were way behind me. No weed, no acid, no mushrooms. We were just drinking a couple of beers. All of a sudden, in the crowd of cars, you start hearing a chant, and it's moving from row to row to row. And people are just saying, go, 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 go. And when I look up, we see a kid being chased through the parking lot by a security guard. For what we don't know, we assume it's drugs, he stole someone's ticket, he ripped somebody off at a scalping thing. The dude comes almost right at me and then has to veer left. 
we're just sitting behind our car and all of a sudden this kid comes like at us and then he jogs left and he's running away from us and we're all watching at this point because everyone's rooting for the hippie to get away just by weird coincidence just as the security guard is catching him and putting a hand on his shoulder the kid starts falling down now he is parallel to the ground but there's an ltd ford station wagon he goes head first the, the security guard's got his hand on his shoulder so he's kind of pushing him down a little bit and this guy hits either the bumper dead on or the back quarter panel and he fell straight down never moved never got his hands out and the whole collective audience that was watching this up and down my row was just like oh whoa and they're like whoa dude what 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 happened Within 30 seconds, the security guard jumped on his walkie-talkie. A nondescript gray van came by. Dude jumped out. They tossed this lifeless body in the back of the van, and they were gone. And deadheads being deadheads just went back to their normal environment. And even myself, I forgot about it for over a decade. Just like this eyewitness account, Three deadheads from New York saw security beating someone and throwing them into a van. Was this Adam Katz? It was just smack, fall down, collective groan, dude on a walkie-talkie, hit the yellow jacket on from what I remember. Van comes by, they throw him in like a bag of potatoes, a sack of potatoes, and gone. And that was it. The way they took him and threw him in that van and just darted off. They didn't render any care whatsoever. They didn't call an ambulance over there, which would have been the proper thing to do and let them figure it out. I mean, maybe the kid would have lived. In my research, the coroner was like, yeah, he probably got hit over the head with a flashlight. But if you think about a kid running straight into a bumper or a back quarter panel, you know, it's gonna be very similar to that. And he probably crushed his neck at the same time. They just took this dude and threw him in the back of that van. When I read about it, they found him in the weeds between the two venues right on Route 120 over there. I think it was Patterson Plank Road or could have been Route 17. They're like, that makes sense. Two guys would have driven that kid around, you know, in the back of the van until nightfall. And then just throw him in there and make it look like he either jumped off a thing or fell off the walkway or whatever. So eyewitness accounts aren't perfect. And memories aren't either. Some eyewitness accounts claim they saw Adam leave after the show. But Antonio's story claims he saw this before the concert even started. Regardless, it's clear that security was being violent that night. Are the Yellow Jackets responsible for Adam's death? To this day, there are no witnesses that we know of. And Adam's murder remains unsolved. Adam Katz didn't die of a drug overdose or an accident. The autopsy findings were clear. His cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. In the days and weeks after the show at Meadowlands, dozens of concert goers came forward citing violence from security guards. Is this how Adam Katz died? It's been nearly 33 years now. And any information on this case is scarce to say the least. But in the archives of the New York Times, I stumbled upon a 1991 article with some pretty revelatory information. 
According to an official FBI investigative report, one witness came forward stating she saw multiple security personnel forcibly evict Adam Katz from the arena during a break in the concert. She claims that multiple security guards surrounded Katz and beat him in the parking lot, threw his body in a van, and dumped him in the middle northbound lane of Route 120. This is a very bold and detailed claim. And if it's true, then one or more of the security guards working the dead show that night potentially murdered Adam Katz. But a lone eyewitness isn't usually enough for a conviction in a murder case. Physical evidence is what puts people behind bars. Upon further reading of the FBI's investigation, it revealed what may be the smoking gun in this case. According to an official FBI analysis, a red nylon carpet fiber was recovered from Adam Katz's sneaker. This fiber was an exact match to the carpet flooring inside the security vans that night. And despite this information, no charges have ever been filed. for checking out Dead and Gone. Dead and Gone is written, hosted, and produced by Payne Lindsay and Jake Brennan. Check out Jake's other music and true crime show, Disgraceland, about musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly, as well as Payne's other shows, Radio Rental, Atlanta Monster, and Up and Vanished. Dead and Gone is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Double Elvis, and brought to you by Cadence 13 and executive produced by Donald Albright, Payne Lindsay, Brady Sadler, and Jake Brennan. The show is produced by myself, Mike Rooney, Alex Vespasted, and Eric Quintana. Mixed by Cooper Skinner. Music by Makeup and Vanity Set. With additional music services by Ryan Spraker. Additional mixing by Matt Bowden. Additional writing by Zeth Lundy. Copy edited by Pat Healy. Research and reporting by Eric Tricky. Cover design by Matt Mills for mattmillsart.com. Special thanks to Orrin Rosenbaum and Grace Royer from UTA, Ryan Nord, Jesse Nord, and Matthew Papa from the Nord Group, Chris Cochran and the Cadence 13 team, Beck Media and Marketing, Station 16, and the teams at Tenderfoot TV and Double Elvis. And as always, thank you for your support.